Welcome to Digital Yom, a podcast about living a symbolic life in a technological age. Man cannot stand a meaningless life. I'm Jason Smith, Jungian analyst and author of Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life. And in this episode, we confront the difficulties of the inner life and consider the hard work of learning to live creative and authentic lives. It's the human soul. That's the very treasure. Everything good is costly, and the development of the personality is one of the most costly of all things. It's a matter of saying yea to oneself, of taking oneself as the most serious of tasks, of being conscious of everything one does and keeping it constantly before one's eyes in all its dubious aspects. Truly a task that taxes us to the utmost. It's easy to do what is not good, and things that harm oneself says the Buddha, as recorded in the sacred text of the Dhammapada. It's very difficult to do things beneficial and good. Everything good is costly, is Jung's version of this same difficult truth. And I have to admit that I have some hesitation in speaking about this topic because it is difficult. And there's always the danger of discouragement and a drawing back from the challenges of our inner work. And I don't want to discourage anyone. But as I've said before, the symbolic life is not a path of denial. And it's essential to be aware of the challenges it presents and the demands it makes on us. Everything good is costly, and the development of the personality is one of the most costly of all things. Why? Well, for one thing, it's a work. It doesn't just happen. One must, Jung says, take oneself as the most serious of tasks. And he's not directing us towards some kind of self-care here, but rather to a self-examination and a self-understanding 
one that would require of us as complete an investment of our creative energies as we can give. We must look at ourselves and our lives as the most serious of tasks. And Jung is not alone in suggesting such an investment of the self. Those individuals who are called to living deeply and authentically, who seek meaning and the aliveness of the creative spirit, frequently give expression to the importance of this kind of self-expenditure. And their language is often uncompromising. And so we hear the poet Mary Oliver say, of this there can be no question. Creative work requires a loyalty as complete as the loyalty of water to the force of gravity. We must give ourselves, she is saying, to the pull of our deepest being. And the theologian and philosopher Raymond Panikkar agrees, we either accept the spiritual life with all our heart, he says, thrusting ourselves into it with intensity and passion, or we view it only as a new luxury article to be consumed. And according to the Confucian text, the Chung Yung, only the most absolute sincerity under heaven can effect any change. And this, in turn, is echoed down the years once again by Jung. The way is ineffable, he says. One cannot, one must not betray it. One needs faith, courage, and no end of honesty and patience. And I could go on piling up examples over and over again. The artists and thinkers and spiritual seekers insist that the task of life, the task that we ourselves are, is a work. It's a work, as T.S. Eliot wrote, costing nothing less than everything. And these testimonies are the fruit of the individual experiences of those personalities who have taken themselves as the most serious of tasks. But they also reflect a deep psychological and archetypal truth. And this truth is given symbolic expression in one of the sayings of Jesus in the New Testament. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus' words here should not be understood as referring to membership in some religious group. Psychologically speaking, Jesus stands as a symbol for the supreme realization of the self, the ideal of the fully 
authentic self. And if we are not on the side of this ideal, even if it's beyond our power to realize it in its completeness, then we're working against it. And if we're not trying to gather all the parts of ourselves into a unified whole, we remain scattered, fragmented, partial. And the Sufi mystic Rumi says exactly the same thing. If you are here unfaithfully with us, you're causing terrible damage. And this is why it's so difficult. For if we really take our inner work seriously, it doesn't let us off the hook. And it doesn't let us off the hook even if we don't take it seriously. Until you make the unconscious conscious, writes Jung, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. In other words, our lack of awareness of our own psychological depths does not make them go away. It just makes us more susceptible to their raw, unrefined, and potentially destructive expressions. What we don't learn to relate to constructively will enter our lives disruptively, as a crisis, perhaps, or an accident, or the accumulated deterioration that follows upon prolonged neglect. Whoever doesn't gather with me scatters. It's not easy to live consciously. It's not easy to live authentically. And it's not easy sometimes to even recognize our innate creative gifts, let alone to take them seriously when we do. But the consequences for not doing so can be high. If someone has a creative gift, says the Jungian analyst Marie-Louise von Franz, and out of laziness or some other reason doesn't use it, the psychic energy turns to sheer poison. What is life-giving in us is in danger of becoming deadening. And what is beautiful in us is in danger of turning ugly. Saying yea to oneself, as Jung suggests, is not just an affirmation, but a commitment. And though it taxes us to the utmost, it is a work that is ultimately in the service of life. And there's a story from the Arthurian tradition called The Marriage of Sir Gawain and Dame Ragnall that I think speaks to some of these themes. So let me present here a brief retelling of the story. 
When the story opens, King Arthur and his knights are hunting in the forest. Arthur wanders off from the rest of the party in pursuit of a heart, a male deer, which he kills and butchers. And while he's engaged in this, a strange knight appears and demands vengeance from Arthur for the wrongs that he has suffered at the king's hands. Because Arthur is unarmed, the knight lets him go, but not before exacting a promise from the king to return to the same spot in a year's time with an answer to a riddle. What is it that women love best? If Arthur cannot answer this question satisfactorily, he will lose his life. Arthur tells Gawain of his predicament, and the two of them travel throughout the land, collecting as many answers as they can gather from all the people that they meet. And it's during his travels that Arthur meets Dame Ragnall, the most loathly woman that he has ever seen. She's described as having only two teeth like boar's tusks, the length of a hand on the sides of her mouth. One tusk went up and the other down. Her mouth was enormously wide and was surrounded by many gray hairs. Dame Ragnall offers to give Arthur the answer he seeks if he will agree to let her wed Sir Gawain. The king, fearful for his life, reluctantly agrees, and she tells him her answer. What women most want, she says, is neither beauty, nor youth, nor even love, but sovereignty. And just as she had promised, this proves to be the answer that saves Arthur from his plight. But now there still remains the matter of her marriage to Gawain. And despite her hideous appearance, Gawain never hesitates for a moment to marry Dame Ragnall. And this courtesy, in turn, moves her to reveal to Gawain her true appearance. She shows him that she is, in fact, a young, beautiful woman who has been living under an enchantment. Gawain is surprised by her sudden change of appearance and asks, What are you? Sir, she responds, I am your wife, of course. And now you must make a choice, as my beauty will not last. You may have me fair at night, and foul at day in everyone's sight, or fair during the day, and foul at night. You must choose one or the other. Which would you prefer to save your honor? Alas, said Gawain. The choice is hard. To have you fare only at night would sorely grieve my heart and take away my honor. 
And if I desire to have you beautiful at daytime, at night, I would have a meager reward. I would like to choose what is best, but I have no idea what to say. So I give you the choice. Do as you like. Whatever you wish, I put it in your hand. And the lady responded, Thanks to you, courteous knight. May you be blessed, for now I am honored. You will have me fare both day and night as long as I live. So do not be grieved. With his decision, Gawain has given her sovereignty. And this has freed Dame Ragnall from her enchantment. And their marriage brings great joy and renewal to the whole kingdom. It's not uncommon that the first appearance of the inner life is not very pretty. It makes itself known often in symptomatic form, letting us know that something's wrong, that there's some imbalance in our psychic economy. Of course, it's natural to want to avoid what is unpleasant as long as possible. But if it's a true call of the soul, eventually the old coping mechanisms, the old ways of being and living will lose their power to keep it at bay. And this is the situation of King Arthur, who represents our ruling attitude to life. He's caught by a demand he cannot escape. He needs a new attitude, a new possibility, represented by Gawain, to restore his relation to life. The genius of Gawain is that he's unflinching in the face of the inner demand, represented here by Dame Ragnall. Instinctively, he seems to know the psychological truth that Jung describes when he says, the mask of the unconscious is not rigid. It reflects the face we turn towards it. Hostility lends it a threatening aspect. Friendliness softens its features. Gawain is the one who says yea to the adventure of the soul. He takes the suffering of the soul as the most serious of tasks. And more than that, he submits to the inner life, gives it sovereignty, and in doing so, sets it free. It's simple enough to say, be yourself. But the truth is, to be what we are, to love what we love, and to give it a place in our lives is no simple thing. It is a great work, 
one that takes courage to go against the grain, not only in regard to how we'd like others to see us, but also in how we'd like to see ourselves as well. To let what is truly in our souls have sovereignty, to turn a friendly face to the unconscious, takes courage and what can only be called faith. And the takeaway here is extremely important if we can take it seriously. The relationship that we have to our inner life, our inner work, the face we turn to the unconscious is also the relationship that we have with the world. For we project this inner relationship onto the world around us, onto other people and groups of people, and even onto the planet itself. And it becomes the basis of how we see and treat all these others in our life. And so a right relationship to our souls, to our inner life, it's not just some personal indulgence. It is, in a sense, a sacred responsibility that we hold if we approach it in the right spirit. For it's not only about our personal life and satisfaction, but it's actually a way that we take care of others as well. And even in some small and perhaps invisible way, renew the whole world. Until next time. You'll find information in the show notes for all the sources used in this week's episode, as well as links to connect with me on social media. Let's make this a conversation. If you have questions about anything you heard in the episode or that you'd like me to address in a future episode, send them to me on Facebook or Twitter using the hashtag DigitalYolk. Finally, if you want a deeper dive into the kind of material explored in this podcast, please check out my book, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life, available now from Chiron Publications. Thanks for listening, and take good care.